Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Stand up for democracy. Support South Africa's hard-won media freedom. It starts with you, leadsa.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Chris, good morning. Nice to talk to you again. Likewise, hello, Reddy. Lovely. Okay, let's start with this plant attacking bugs that raid the sweet jar, except the sweet jar is in the plant itself. What's that about? Yeah, well, for many years, scientists have wanted to understand how sugars get out of cells and go around the body of a plant, because plants are the primary producers here on Earth. They capture energy from the sun in the process of photosynthesis. This chemical energy, sorry, this photoelectric energy is used to drive the process of photosynthesis which produces sugars but then how does the plant get the sugars out of the cells that make it so it can send them all around the plant for instance in a potato you've got the energy being produced in the leaves but then the energy is stored in these tubers we call them potatoes they taste great to eat how does the sugar get from one place to the other it's important because uh, the way in which s- certain pests attack plants is that they liberate sugars from the tissues and then eat them. So if we can work out how this happens, then you can potentially find a new way to stop plant pests, like bacteria and fungi, from attacking the plants. So what a group of researchers in America, this is Wolf Frommer and his colleagues, he's at the Carnegie Institution um, for Science, which is over in California. They've published in a paper in Nature this week the discovery of these channels that they call sweets, S-W-E-E-T-S, appropriately enough. They do it in a very ingenious way. So what they do is they went through the entire genome of a plant called Arabidopsis, which is um, a well-known plant which is used by geneticists who want to understand plants very well. They went looking for genes in Arabidopsis that looked like they might have some role to play, based on their genetic signature, in handling sugars. Mm-hmm. They then expressed each of those genes in turn actually in human embryonic kidney cells. So you've got human cells growing in the dish and you can put the plant gene into the human cell and they also added a chemical which when sugar moved into the cell, into various parts of the cell, it would glow green. And incredibly, when some of these plant genes that they'd selected were expressed in these embryonic kidney cells, they made the cells start to glow green, indicating that the gene that they'd put into the cell must be concerned with moving sugar around. And this enabled them to home in on a whole range. In fact, in the Arabidopsis plant they were looking at, 21, sorry, 14 genes. Mm -hmm. And in rice, they've now found a predicted 21 genes which move sugars in and out of cells. They then looked in other animals, and even humans have a version of this gene running in us. Now, apart from telling us, obviously, that this, that we all have a common ancestor back in history somewhere that, that plants and humans share together, this is important because... Understanding human physiology and how we handle sugars 
is um, is important because diabetes is a major killer worldwide and there are millions of people with that problem and so a, another handle on how we move sugars around is useful but mm. in plants this is cool because what they can now do and they've actually demonstrated is that when plants get attacked by certain bacteria and certain fungi including the mildewy things like botrytis Take, makes great wine though by the way mm. um what actually is happening is that the microorganisms are making the plant cells turn on these genes put these sweet transporters which are like little pores for sugar onto the surfaces of their cells so the cells then hemorrhage all of their sugars out into the outside area where the bugs are and then the bugs eat the sugar and grow mm. so because we now understand how this works what this bit of bunch of researchers are saying is we should be able to find ways to stop it and this will give us a whole new raft of potentially much more environmentally friendly pesticides and um fungicides to stop uh, microorganisms attacking plants mm. all right here's here's this one i love it uh, chris those who even are thinking about lying about the age, they may not be able to get away with it because it's possible to predict a person's age from a sample of their blood, or it will be. Yeah. Um, well, in, in the past, although techniques, thanks to a guy called Alec Jeffries, who pioneered the process of DNA fingerprinting, although we've been able to work out what someone's genetic barcode would look like, if we go to a crime scene and there's a pool of blood there, you can get DNA from that blood, and that enables you to corroborate that either a person was or wasn't at a crime scene, either as a victim or a perpetrator. But what it can't tell you is how old that person would be, because often when police are trying to trace criminals or victims it helps if they can say to the public the person you're looking for is x years old and if you add to that the fact that dna technology is now sufficiently powerful that you can take a, a, a blood sample from a crime scene and you can analyze it not just for the barcode that's there but you can also ask well what color hair would this person have had what color eyes would they have had how tall might they have been um are they or, or do they have a tendency to go bald as they get older are they male are they female so now what you can do with this new technique is to say not only those things but also probably what age range the person fits into it's a lovely bit of work it's published in the journal current biology this week by researchers at erasmus mc medical center rotterdam it's it's manfred kaiser and his colleagues and what they did was to take 195 healthy dutch volunteers they got blood from them and these individuals were just weeks old up to the age of 80 and they looked in the white blood cells that everyone carries and in these white blood cells they find that as a person gets older there are small pieces of DNA, and these are called SJ Trex. And the reason they're called SJ Trex is because that's a short term for signal joint TCR excision circles. Ooh, I'm glad and there's a short version. <laughs> yeah. yeah. These small pieces of DNA are made when the white blood cells rearrange their DNA in order to mature their immune response. So when a, when a white blood cell needs to attack a target, it rearranges its DNA so that it is making a specific what's called determinant or receptor that only attacks one kind of pathogen. When it does that, it throws away the excess bits of DNA it doesn't need by making these little circles in the cell of DNA that are no longer used. But because, as we get older, the structure that makes those white blood cells, called the thymus, atrophies or shrinks, as you get older, you make fewer of them. And by plotting how many of these little circles the different subjects of different ages had in their study, the researchers show that it drops in a straight line through, through age. 
And so if you do their process, which is you take a blood sample, you tot up how many of these little DNA circles are in the white blood cells in the blood sample, and you standardize how much there is there in total by looking for another gene that's only present in one copy in each cell, what that means is you can then get a fairly accurate, within an 8.9 years plus or minus, wow. how old the person that blood sample came from is. Fascinating. All right, we're taking your calls on 021-446-0567, if you wish to send an SMS, and 31567 if you are in Cape Town right after this. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. It's 17 minutes to 10 o'clock. What do you want to ask the Naked Scientist? What are you very c- curious about this morning on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702? George in Edenvale. Hi. Hi, uh, Rudy. Uh, I'd like to talk about the New Zealand uh, mine disaster. Mm-hmm. Our my, uh, coal miners always used to take a canary into the mine because canaries were very, very sensitive to methane gas. In the moment the canary died, they got out of there because they realized there was a, a methane gas leak. That's the, surely there must be some way to, to uh, again do that. And then the other way, other thing is then they drill a hole into the mine with full of methane gas. The methane gas pours out of the hole and oxygen pours back in. And there's another dis- explosion. Uh, could you please explain that to me? Okay. Hi, George. Um, well, one of the, the big problems, as you've quite correctly pointed out, with mining, and especially mining that involves coal or hydrocarbons, is that alongside the hydrocarbons which are locked up as solid coal, there are very very often gase, gaseous products as well, things like methane and ethane, because the very same processes that produce oil and natural gas can also produce coal. So where you find these things, there'll very often be pockets of trapped gas. When people are mining out the coal, they therefore can liberate these pockets of trapped gas, and they therefore mix with oxygen, which is being pumped down into the mine to sustain the miners, and if something, heat or a spark, whatever, ignites the methane, you then have a problem because not only is that gas flammable and able to burn, but then it can ignite the coal. And there are examples in China, for example, where whole coal seams have been burning for years and years and years underground because the coal gets so hot, it's almost impossible to put it out. And there have been similar disasters in other parts of the world. And as long as the air keeps being fed into the mine or keeps being drawn into the mine, eventually it becomes a self-sustaining process because there's so much heat being liberated that it forces gas up to the surface which then draws other oxygen-filled gas in from elsewhere in the mine or underground through other fissures and cracks and it sustains the burning process and you end up with a whole coal seam alight. Um, that, that I think, is was one of the big worries with the people in New Zealand. Mm. I don't know enough about the actual process of what's going on there to work out exactly or to explain exactly what led to the disaster. I do know that it's a very modern mine that mm. they were working in and had very good equipment and was following all of the safety procedures, being as it's a very modern mine. And it's unfortunately probably one of those things that mining is a dangerous occupation. Mm, mm. And you do occasionally get these movements where the ground is unstable and all of a sudden something will give and this can concentrate pressure through a certain bit of rock and because a certain bit of rock may suddenly start to take more force than it had done previously because 
things move, you can then get a, a collapse. Um, is that is that a sufficient answer, or do I need to to go in some other area of it? Unfortunately, he's gone, but I'm sure he'll phone us back or send us an email if he still has any more uh, follow up questions. But thank you very much, Nick. Uh, let's go to Alex. Alex, you're calling us from Bedford View. Hi. Hi, uh, really, hi, Chris. Mm. Uh, quick question. I'll listen on the radio for the answer. But when you're driving in a vehicle with a GPS system, it gives you the speed that you are travelling. Obviously, it worked out by a satellite. Is that more accurate than your own speedometer? And also, is it more accurate than a policeman who would be pointing a laser at your vehicle? Because I, I don't understand the question, if I can understand the radio. Hello, Alex. Very good question. I hope it's a reliable measure because <laughs> I'm using it in my car. Because I've, I've found, actually, I can go faster if I follow what my GPS says than mm. if I follow what my car speedometer says. Um, obviously, within the speed limit, of course. Um, the way in which the satellite thing is working is that it is following the trajectory of the unit over the road surface and it's taking readings over a certain period of time and distance to work out what the average speed is. Now an average is where you add all the numbers together, divide by the total number of samples to work out what the average value of each sample is. So that means it's meaningful when you are looking at certain things because it irons out noise, and that's why we use an average, because if there are, say, take a population people of people earning money, if you wanted to know what the average salary was, if you were not careful, you could have a couple of people in, this, in the population who earned millions and millions and millions and a couple of people who earned nothing. And if you asked people at random and you picked just a few people who earned millions, you'd think that everyone earned millions. But by taking the entire population or a very big population of samples, adding them all together and working out the average, you can work out what's more representative of the population. So what that means is, as you're driving along in your car, you're working out your average speed that the sat-nav is returning to you, but that means that you could, for a fraction of a second, be doing a million miles an hour, and then in the next fraction be doing zero miles an hour, and the average would be the right speed, let's say. But your sat-nav would say what the average was. The policeman's gun, for a period of time, would temporarily report the very high speed and the very low speed. So it depends on the resolution of the sampling. I think most of the speed systems tend to take an average, so they accept the fact that people do have a heavy right foot from time to time. Mm -hmm. They accept the fact that no one's perfect and that you're allowed 10% over the uh, stated speed limit in most countries because equipment is unreliable. But if you therefore use the fact that if you're going a, a straight speed, you're not changing speed, you stay at that constant speed, and you're, you're following what the sat-nav says, then it should theoretically be every bit as accurate as the, or if not more so, than the reader on your car dashboard. Thank you very much for your question, Alex. And then we go to Zig Zig. You're calling us from Randburg. Hi. Uh, thank you. Morning, Reddy and, and, and Chris. I wanted to ask Chris very much uh, uh, whether we're not heading for, the, for another geomagnetic reversal, which is the change from North Pole to South Pole. And uh, I believe such a change may well be triggered by uh, massive global warming, which then suddenly switches to m a massive ice age. I wonder whether this wasn't what happened in the past. And I believe that when such a switch in, in the magnetic poles takes place, whether that does not render us intensely vulnerable to radiation from the sun, which then causes massive evolutionary change in our genes and whether this is not 
likely to be in the offing quite soon because of our global warming. Thanks very much. Thank you, Zig. Hello, Zig. Zig. Um, very good question. Um, first of all, where does the Earth's magnetic field come from? What is it? Well, the planet behaves as though it's got a massive bar magnet inside it. And this probably arises because in the core of our planet is a lot of iron. And going around the core, that iron is very mobile. And the mobile iron, in some way, produces some kind of changing electric field. And that electric field, in turn, produces a magnetic field. And this is then radiated out from, or, or spreads out around the Earth, and it produces a kind of shield around our planet, which is very useful to us because it helps to deflect around the planet what's called the solar wind. And the sun is losing about 8 million tons in mass every second. Um, most of it is in the heat that it produces, but some of it is this million-mile-an-hour maelstrom of charged particles that go racing past the Earth across space ejected from the sun's surface. And these charged particles, if the Earth's magnetic field were not there, would interact with our atmosphere and rip it away from the planet, taking it with them. And this would, over millions of years, desiccate the Earth until we were a dry husk, rather like Mars. And we know that this is what happens because Mars would have been very wet and rather like the Earth when it was first born as a planet about four and a half billion years ago. But relatively early after it was born, Mars cooled down so much that it lost its own magnetic field and that's why Mars is now dried out today. But the interesting thing about the magnetic field is that it hasn't been static. It doesn't always point in one direction throughout Earth's history. And we know this because when rocks are born, in other words, magma comes up from inside the Earth, reaches the surface of the Earth, or in this case that I'm going to give the example of, the seafloor, it congeals. And because those rocks contain magnetizable particles, when they congeal, they take on the magnetic field to which they are being exposed at the time they were molten. And because the seafloor comes out in the middle of the seafloor, it then migrates towards the edges of the ocean from what's called a, a, a mid-ocean ridge towards the continental shelves where the ocean butts the, abuts the land. Written into the seafloor are millions of years of history of the Earth's magnetic field. And if you look at these patterns that are there, you can see how the Earth's magnetic field has changed. And what this shows is that on a timescale of roughly every 100,000 years or so, mm -hmm. on average and here's our average coming up again, the Earth's magnetic field has flipped round. So what is the North Pole at the moment magnetically becomes the South Pole, mm. and so on. Interestingly, that hasn't happened for 800,000 years since the last time. So this is our average again. There's an average flip round of 100,000 years every 100,000 years. It hasn't happened for nearly a million years. And this mm. suggests we're probably gearing up for it to happen again. We don't know why it happens with the frequency that it does. Um, but when it does happen it probably slowly decays the magnetic field and then re-establishes itself over a timescale maybe of a few thousand years pointing in the new direction. Uh, this means that for that period of time the Earth will become subject to the battering of the solar wind, so we'll start to see effects of that radiation coming in. How profound or pronounced that will be, no one knows, because of course when it last happened, nearly a million years ago, there wasn't anybody here uh, who had the capacity to measure it and to determine the effects. But the sun definitely influences Earth's weather, um, and the particles that arrive from the sun probably are involved in making clouds get, get started in the first place. 
but it's probably quite unlikely that global warming in the first instance will directly influence the establishment of that magnetic field, I would argue. The, the Earth is massive and the radius of the Earth down to the core is 6,000 kilometres. So the amount of material that is responsible for producing that mm. geodynamo effect, that's what the magnetic field generation is called, is so massive compared to what's going on on the surface. It's very unlikely that the surface weather is going to have a major and demonstrable effect on that. It's more likely that when that changes, it then has knock-on effects for uh, everything going on at the surface. I have an SMS here. Um, we had a discussion on the show, Nick, a couple of weeks ago about sleepwalking, and I did tell the listeners that I'm going to ask you about it. I've been forgetting. Is there a scientific explanation for this? We took lots of calls from people who used to sleepwalk or currently sleepwalk, and they don't understand why they do it. Um, there are studies going on. Quite hard to do this because not everyone uh, does it. So if you just take groups of people and then put them into a sleep study, they're not going to sleepwalk every night and not everyone sleepwalks at all. So it's quite hard to get a handle on exactly what's going on. And then what measurements do you make in order to determine why this person is having this set of symptoms? It does appear to be a real phenomenon and it would appear that people do this when they are conscious enough so their brain is switched on in certain aspects, so it knows how to control the body's motor system, make you move, but it's not sufficiently active to be informing you, um, I am awake, I now have to be active and make conscious decisions for what's happening to me. And this is an interesting area of research because there's another problem called sleep paralysis, which is almost like the opposite of sleepwalking. And this is where people wake up in the middle of the night and they are quite literally paralysed. And it's terrifying because often people will be in the middle of a dream, they'll wake up and it's a dream that they want to do something about or then go, oh, thank God it was just a dream. But they're paralysed, they cannot move. And the reason this happens is because there's a part of the brain in the brain stem, it's called the subcerulea region, and it's in the bit of the brain stem um, which is near a structure called the locus ceruleus, which we think becomes active when you dream, so it kind of fits together. And what this region does is it turns off the flow of motor information coming out of the brain to the rest of the body. Mm -hmm. So it stops you acting out your dreams. Uh, because it could get pretty violent in the bedroom if you were to start <laughs> acting out your dreams, if, it, it, depending on what you're dreaming about, obviously. Um, so you don't want to thrash around too much when you're asleep, so it suppresses activity going down the spinal cord, which makes you move. Mm. So what the, the theory is that when people have this sleep paralysis, for some reason this paralysing influence of this brain region doesn't turn off at the right time um, when these people wake up. I wonder whether sleepwalking could be that there's a failure of this paralysis programme temporarily in some people and from time to time and so they do end up acting out their dreams almost and they're not conscious of the fact mm. that they've got up and they're walking around we know this is true because if you do experiments on cats scientists have taken cats and they have deactivated this bit of the brain in these cats and when a cat go when the cats that were in the studies go to sleep they get up and they start acting out their dreams prancing around stalking imaginary prey and that kind of thing Okay, let's quickly go to Tsepo. Very quickly, Tsepo, as you know, we've got this very important press conference coming up in a second. What's your question? Uh, my name is Tsepo from Victoria. Yes, what's your question, Tsepo? My question is that uh, I bought this nice, expensive jersey that my wife has washed and it has shrinked. <laughs> and then the sure. way I like this jersey, I went and bought another one, the same size, extra large. But the, the previous one is so small. That I can't wait. So I want to get it to this original size than with the new jersey that I have. Okay, so is it possible for something that is shrunk to return to its original size? 
I have that same problem, Tabo. Uh, sorry to hear that. Um, what is happening when something shrinks is that you are making the molecules, which are the substance from which the, or usually the polymers from which the, the chemicals, um, the, the material is made, change their configuration. And when you apply heat to something, what happens is that the molecules can get a bit of extra energy for a while. This can make them shake around a bit harder and they change their configuration relative to each other and then they lock together when the temperature goes down again in a new configuration, usually a smaller, tighter one. And unfortunately, it's very hard to reverse that process. Unfortunately, I think you're going to have to donate your jersey to someone smaller than you and buy a new one. Or lose lots of weight. That's <laughs> or, or you could lose a lot of weight, that's true, but I didn't say that. <laughs> Chris, I'll chat to you next week. Thank you for having me, Reedy. Have a great weekend, bye, everyone. Bye, bye, That's the Naked Scientist, and uh, every conversation that we have with him is available as a podcast. We still get emails from people who want to get in touch with Chris directly. It's fine. You can email us, but it's better if you email him uh, directly, and I know that he, he does respond to as many of the emails as he possibly can. And uh, the website address for our Naked Scientists, you can visit their website at www.thenakedscientistsplural.com. Okay? Uh, one word, thenakedscientists.com and uh, your questions will be uh, answered there. And The Naked Scientist is now one of the world's most downloaded science podcasts. As we said earlier, we are going to be crossing live to the press conference with Glenn Agliotti. I'll open lines so that you can express your thoughts and your views on that one. But first, let's find out what's happening in our world. This Eyewitness News is brought to you by BMG, proudly part of the process. It's 10 o'clock.